And during the few moments that we have left, we want to talk right down to earth in a language that everybody here can easily understand. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to the Surely You Can't Be Serious podcast. We are here today talking living color. Damon Waynes. And <laughs> David Allen Greer. Jim, Jim Carrey. <laughs> No, sorry, wrong living color. We are here today to talk about the album Vivid. We are here with our good friend, original Patreon subscriber, Mr. James Buckley. How's it going, James? It is a lovely day in paradise. Any time I can talk with you guys is a good time. It's been about well, about a year or so since you talked Alice in Chains with us, right? I guess that was last fall. Yeah. yeah. It's been a while, but I figured you guys had hit the bottom of the barrel again, so you called me up to <laughs> favorite albums of all time. So this is part of our Summer of 88 series. This one came out the exact same day as Open Up and Say Ah by Poison. Did you buy both albums that day? Not that day. It uh-huh. took me until 1989 to catch on to living color yeah james did you know living in color before they started hitting the radio waves or mtv i remember hearing cult of personality before we saw the video there was a local radio station out of shreveport which played pretty had a pretty good selection of rock music and they were playing cult of personality how can you not fall in love with that song but it wasn't until i guess early 89 when i finally saw the video and you know, wanted a pair of body glove clothing, you know, right away, but still. Of course. Yeah. And then I think that's around the time I got the cassette because I remember I was a freshman in college and a guy in my English class, he was a bass player. And he went, I would just sit at the back of the classroom and geek out over the musicianship on that album. The originator of this band is a guy named Vernon Reed. He's the lead guitarist of the band. I can remember talking to other guitarists at the time, because this was about the time that I, I started playing guitar. I told Jason after 1988, and it was because I had started playing guitar, I got introduced to classic rock that I had never listened to before. And so I was listening to Led Zeppelin, Leonard Skinner, the Eagles, all these 70s bands in 1989. So unless it was a nuclear bomb song like Welcome to the Jungle or Cult of Personality, I didn't really know about it. I told you. I was on a ski trip and our buddy Patreon Chris Bauer you know it was back in the days when you you were passing off headphones and that's how you would share music hey man here put my headphones on listen to this hits play I'm like dude that song is awesome and that's how I got to know Cult of Personality now the release dates on this is it's tricky because this album was released on May 3rd of 1988 it did not catch fire in my neighborhood until 1989 it was a slow burner for a long time before it actually caught on. Rolling Stone ranks this as the number 64th best album of the 1980s, and it's two times platinum. It has hard rock, funk, metal, jazz, pop, arena rock, and punk all merged together on one album. And I'm like evangelistic about this album. I think it's great. I tell everybody about it. Most people know Cult of Personality, but they don't know it's packed full of great songs. Trying to define this band or fit them into one particular category is pretty well impossible. They said people would come up to us afterwards and go, you know, what kind of music is this? And they would say, well, what kind of music do you think it is? Because everybody had a different perspective on it. And it was, they were taking from so many different musical fields and just amalgamizing them together. It was, it was something that nobody had done before. The late 80s were a weird time in heavy metal. A lot of the hair stuff was starting to lose some of its allure, even though I still loved a lot of it. You had in the Northwest, you had Soundgarden who were starting to come out and they were combining like traditional Black Sabbath type metal with psychedelia and punk rock. You had Faith No More who were cramming heavy metal in with everything from Cabaret 
cabaret jazz to punk. And then you had living color. I mean, as you said, it was everything. It was metal. It was punk. It was funk. Freeform jazz all crammed into one album. And I'm still listening to what? 35 years later. Yeah. Yeah. So Vernon Reed had trained as a jazz musician was involved with a guy, James, that you had talked to us about. And you said you thought that his experience with this guy probably was key in sculpting his musical abilities. Yeah. Um, he played with a jazz drummer named Ronald Shannon Jackson, who was a free jazz guy. You know, being a North Louisiana guy, have obviously have an extensive background in free jazz appreciation. <laughs> but I, I took one for the team and I went and listened to some of the decoding society stuff. He played with Ronald Shannon Jackson uh-huh. and it's bizarre. It's like, you'll have guys playing in several keys at the same time, several rhythms. Sometimes it seems like different time signatures, but they still found a way to make it resolve. There were a couple of different bands that Vernon Reed had called living color before the true core group formed. Okay. And they were more jazz. It was a totally different sound than what we end up with for Vivid. These guys, their influences are Led Zeppelin, Leonard Skinner, Van Halen, you know, Prince. He said Little Red Corvette was like manna from heaven. Vernon also mentioned a band called The Bad Brains, who I happen to love. And it's kind yeah. of an interesting story because The Bad Brains were four guys from New York who were like jazz musicians. But then they heard the Ramones and the Dead Boys and other punk bands and decided they wanted to start a band. And it was very fast, hardcore punk. I know that Living Color has covered their song Sailing On a lot, but their guitarist was a guy named Dr. No, K-N-O-W. His real name was Gary Miller, I think. Uh-huh. And Vernon also listed him as being one of his influences. So you can kind of see them as a follow-up to what The Bad Brains started back in the 80s. You sent me this morning, you sent me their cover version of should I stay or should I go by the clash? Darling, you got to let me know. You can hear a lot of the Bad Brains influence in the way they did that. The chorus, that really sped up chorus, that's kind of more the Bad Brains approach to the song. Yeah, it sounded like somebody was messing with the record player back in the day when you could (laughs) switch from 33 to 45, you know. They hit the double time. Now, they did the double time in the original Clash version as well, but they didn't do it. They didn't do it until like the end of the song, which is my ears. That's where you expect it is. It comes in on that end. Um, But they kind of, they took it and they really cranked it up right in the middle and then they went back to slow again and then they cranked it up again at the end as well it's crazy okay so vernon reed and Corey glover meet at a birthday party whose birthday this is Corey glover's ex-girlfriend's birthday party so anyway for whatever reason Corey glover's ex-girlfriend asks him to sing happy birthday to her not everyone right okay, yeah i want Corey to sing to me yeah and Corey, in an effort to win her back is going to blow the doors off singing happy birthday to her, right? Yeah. He's trying to impress her. So here comes happy birthday. But Vernon Reed catches him later and says, hey, man, I'm putting together a band. Yeah. And you have a very strong singing voice. How would you like to make music with me? Yeah. When he came to audition for the band, there was another guy who was there also auditioning for the band, right? That's true. Yeah. And they said, okay, so we'll think about this. We'll give you guys a call back. And he was expecting to hear something, you know, a day or two later and nothing. (laughs) That's right. For several weeks. And so like after several weeks, he's like, I didn't get the job. And he was right. He didn't get the job. But then they had set a gig. Whoever the guy was that they had hired to be their lead singer bailed on them. 
And so they called him up and said, can you come sing the can song? We in? have this gig. And it was, he was ready. He was ready to go. He had, he, for those first several days, he'd been learning the songs because he thought, I got this, I got this. It paid off because ultimately he was able to slide in there. That's good. So after that, they added Will Calhoun, who is an award-winning Berkeley College of Music graduate. Yeah. Will Calhoun, he's one of those guys up until when I first heard him in the late 80s, he really opened my eyes what you could do within a rock drumming context. Will came from the, a jazz background as well. I think he'd won the Buddy Rich Award while he was at Berkeley, which I'm pretty sure they don't just hand out. When he joined Living Color, oh man. It was like they put John Bonham, gave him a little bit of musical steroids and threw in some of his jazz fusion influences. And Will Calhoun is just a monster. He still amazes me to this day. Yeah, plus he looks cool. I love. He's always wearing a tank top. He's muscled up. And he looks like he's on the way to the gym. Like He does. He looks hey, fierce. He does look fierce. That's right. <laughs> hey, I'm on the way to the gym. I guess I can stop and play drums for you and uh, Cult of Personality. Now, he, he does lots of cool little jazz-influenced licks, but he does them in a way where it sounds like a rock player playing. He doesn't sound like a jazz player trying to play rock. After that, they added Muzz Skillings. Yeah, the I bass can't... player. He was another. All these guys are from the New York, Queens area. Even though Vernon was born in England, which I guess explains why they have the OU in color and you can't really Muzz. blame them for putting OU in anything, but keep going. <laughs> I, I apologize. I see. My <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Muzz was just no one of those guys he had a jazz background. He played around town with some few people and he played in some rock bands. I think some jazz, some funk bands. And I tell you, I was listening to the album closely this week and he is a phenomenal player. He really throws in some really great bass licks. So they had a relationship with a bass player named Doug Wimbush before this, and he didn't he didn't play with this original setup of the band, but was still friends with them. Right. Ultimately, in 1992, whenever Muzz Skillings leaves, he comes in to become the bass player. But he is a key ingredient to the reason we know this band. He's the guy that got Rolling Stones. Mick Jagger to come to CBGB's and listen to these guys play. So I've heard a couple of different versions, but Mick Jagger was looking for musicians to play on his second solo album. That was called Primitive Cool. And he invited Vernon Reed to come and audition for that. Corey Glover wasn't doing anything, so he just tagged along. Up to that point, Corey Glover was working as a security guard at Tower Records undercover. And his job was to keep people from shoplifting. He said I was terrible at it because I'd let people steal records all the time. <laughs> <laughs> you you go ahead and take them bananas. <laughs> I brought Damon Wayne's back into it. Do you Good see what I did? Color, color. color. I get it. Yeah. <laughs> but uh, when they got there, Vernon Reed and Corey Glover standing there, and they said, "Well, I'm here to audition for your band, but we also have our own band. It's called Living Color." And Mick Jagger said, "I've heard of you guys." And they said, "Really? You've heard of us?" And he said, "Yeah, I've heard you're great." And they're like, "Well, guess what? We got a gig next weekend. Why don't you come?" And so he says. I'll be there. And they were like, oh my gosh, Mick Jagger is coming to hear us play. So they actually had to rope off a table for him. He came to CBGB's to hear him play. And he said, wow, we need to get you on an album. If Mick Jagger comes to Epic and says, these guys are good. They're really, really good. Epic is going to say, all right, well, let's get them on the, let's get them on the payroll. Well, here's the thing. It didn't quite go that easy. Yeah. They actually, so Mick Jagger produced two demos for them. He produced Which Way to America, and he produced the demo for Glamour Boys. When they started shopping those around, every record company in town said no. This And this is with Mick Jagger yeah. editing them up. Yeah. They even had one A&R guy, their manager, went to one A&R guy, and he said, Mick Jagger, what's he done lately? <laughs> Are you kidding me? Wow. So 
they ended up signing with Epic. And Ed Stasium is the guy who produced this album. He had done albums with the Ramones, Talking Heads, and he was actually the producer for Primitive Cool for Mick Jagger. And so they recorded this album late in 1987. Ed Stasium, it's an interesting choice because you mentioned the Talking Heads. That'll come up later. But Ed had also, in a couple of years, he would produce my favorite Motorhead album, 1916. I think the people he recorded pretty much reflects what you hear in Living Color Sounds. You got the kind of weird alternative stuff. You got the pop rock. You've got heavy metal all thrown in. So Ed may have been the perfect choice. So this article that I read that you sent me this morning, James, mm-hmm. I had no idea. Corey Glover was actually, I mean, he kind of started off as an actor. I almost fell out of my chair when I realized that he was in the movie Platoon. Well, and he was also in a army recruitment commercial where he's sitting in a, in a little diner with some friend. They're like, well, what are you going to do after school? I don't know. What are you going to, and he's like, do something special, you know, join the army. He I'm going to do something special. Vietnam. <laughs> <laughs> I'm going to do something special. I'm going to come out with this rock anthem that's going to blow people's socks off called Court of Personality. Are we ready to dive in track by track on this album? Is this the time? This is the time. Okay. First song out of the gate is a song called Cult of Personality. And during the few moments that we have left, we want to talk right down to earth in a language that everybody here can easily understand. All I got to say right now is I wish you guys could see what we can see because there is a Louisiana lawyer in a suit and tie with drumsticks swinging at the screen. It is absolutely fantastic. If that opening, like I was saying, if that opening doesn't get your blood to boiling and your pulse to racing, you may as well just go back to your Taylor Swift albums. <laughs> yeah, and, and I all do apologies to the Swifties. I know there are a lot of you out there, but this is the power anthem. This is the best song in the album. This is one of the best songs of the '80s. You had it on your list of '88. I think you had it on your list of '88. One hundred percent. You have so many. New and different things going on here. Like we talked about the the ability of these musicians to take different influences and shove them all together. But not only do you have that, you have a band that looks completely different than all of the other bands that we're seeing on MTV at the time. They are not only a band completely composed of African-Americans versus all of these white guy bands that we're seeing, but instead of leather and chains, they're in like these bright spandex body glove style clothing. And it's just, it's like, what the heck is going on? And then they're playing music, which is, I mean, that opening riff is so Led Zeppelin ish, but even more powerful because they're, they're throwing those jazz influences in there and then coming with those crashing drums. I mean, Holy cow. And then they put in hyper intellectual lyrics to the song right i mean i didn't know what cult of personality was before i heard this song i had to go find this stuff out right so and then once i learned about it, i'm like holy cow this is an amazing phenomenon 
So it comes from a Nikita Khrushchev report on Stalin. The name of the report is On the Cult of Personality and Its Consequences. But Stalin is kind of that key definitive cult of personality guy. Cult of personality being where you have this greater than life image, right? You know, creating an icon out of a human being. And that's what the song is all about. And not only do they talk about that, that side of things, but then they also throw in, hey, this isn't just the bad guy commies. They're throwing in Kennedy. Right. And Gandhi. Right. You know, it's this idea that, hey, we can take these mortal men and turn them into superheroes or supervillains, no matter who they might be, because they've got some sort of charisma that, like, in our mind, creates a bigger and more powerful character. So let's do the list. You got Mussolini. You got Kennedy. Yep. You got Gandhi. You've got Martin Luther King. You've got Malcolm X. You've got Jesus Christ alluded to. Uh, you give him power in your God's name. But the one that they had to nix, they they actually cut this one out. Yeah, I was going to say, you may have to spell it because, uh, you know, the, the software out there picks up, we're talking about H-I-T-L-E-R, and they're going to, like, Thank you. nix us or something. I know, right? Again, it's hyper. It's, it's so, I mean, and that's the reason they took it out is that it was, they were worried that it was going to become too controversial i can remember listening to the solo on this song and saying to myself there is no rhyme or reason there's no logic to what this guy is playing and it's still blowing my freaking mind like it's all over the place it doesn't follow any kind of you know what you would expect as a pattern or scale and it's still absolutely singable yeah it's like somebody spilled a box of bells you know it just it's all over the place it's chaotic and it's awesome it's controlled chaos and you look at vernon's musical background you, you figure out where some of that came from but like you guys said it doesn't really make any melodic sense but it somehow it works one of the top guitar solos of all time i think yeah, yeah. I heard the producer talking about it said that Vernon Reed did it one time, hailed it, said he didn't give him any direction. He said, you don't F with art. Right. They caught lightning in a bottle for sure. Yep. So here's the interesting thing. They discovered this riff when they were trying to practice another song. Like they stumbled upon it. Yeah, it actually came from Corey Glover humming something. And then Vernon Reed hearing something in what he hummed and trying to recreate that on the guitar. That's where it hits. And then they're like, okay, well, what do we, you know, what are the lyrics? And Vernon Reed opens up this little notebook that he has. First page that he, he comes to says, look in my eyes. What do you see? The cult of personality. Reed said that that riff, he said it had a Zeppelin vibe, but it also had what he called a Mahavishnu orchestra vibe. Mahavishnu orchestra, one of those crazy jazz fusion acts from the 70s who would play in like 137, eight time tune for time signature and stuff like that. So once again, there's his hard rock and his jazz influences getting slammed together and coming up with one of the great riffs of all time. By the way, in the studio, Ed Stasium rearranged the song. So they had been playing this for years, right? They had played this like thousands of times at CBGBs and stuff like that. Vernon Reed said, what you guys hear on the record is not what we had been playing for those first thousand times he made us put the hook at the beginning of the song when we look back on it we're like how did we not start with that great hook yeah that's what a good producer would do for you there's just a lot going on in the song man and it's all awesome let's talk about the importance of michael jackson's smooth criminal on cult personality this is a story i've been waiting to hear really? I, I deliberately did not go and look this up because you mentioned it i'm like this is a story i want to just sit down and and sit by the campfire and hear the story. Give it okay, to all right, so here's the deal. Here's what we have to, to understand, is that this album was released in May of 1988. 
it basically did nothing in the United States until April of 89. Okay. So what's going on within that year? Well, they had released a couple of singles in Britain, but it hadn't broken, hadn't done anything in the US. And so Epic basically said to MTV, we will not give you Michael Jackson's Smooth Criminal video until you put Pulp Personality in heavy rotation. Wow. And at that moment, when the King of Pop holds his video back, MTV is like, okay, deal. Heavy rotation for Cult of Personality. And that causes it to go through the roof. So Michael Jackson and Mick Jagger have a huge impact on the success of Living Color. Awesome. By the way, they won the Grammy for Best Hard Rock Performance for this song. I watched the actual presentation. It was presented by Cyndi Lauper and the B-52s. They also won the MTV Music Award for Best New Artist and Best Group Video. This was actually presented by Mick Jagger on stage because they opened they opened for the Rolling Stones during the Steel Wills tour in September of 89. Now, listen, on this tour, you had Living Color, Guns N' Roses, and the Rolling Stones. And James, you just said your wife, was well, she just came yeah, on and she, told us she, she was told at us that. that she was there. She, she saw it down in New Orleans. That would have been one amazing concert, especially yeah. at that moment. And actually, Living Color kind of got in a war of words with Axl Rose over the lyrics to one in a million. Yeah, Axel, yeah, he I think he had a daily list of people to tick off and Vernon and the boys just happened to make it that day. The video blew away a lot of folks and opened up a lot of ears and eyes. I, I found that great quote from Tom Morello from Rage Against the Machine. Yes. And said that I was absolutely blown away that clearly there were other African Americans who unapologetically loved Led Zeppelin and wanted to shred. You know, D mentioned the body glove that Corey Glover wears in that video. He said when he was shopping, he was like, you know, I want something kind of splashy. I want to look cool. Well, body glove took notice of that and they started sending him stuff to wear for his concert. He said, everything they sent me looked more and more like superheroes. <laughs> okay. The Billboard Hot 100 for May 6th, 1989. Okay. I've got to roll through this real quick, okay? What, what number did this, do, do we know what number this hit? 13 is where it topped out. That's nuts. 13. Okay. So that means that people thought there were 12 songs better than this. Now, the 12 songs that are quote unquote better than this, mm -hmm. I told you this is like a list of my mom's favorite songs from 1989. Okay. <laughs> right. All right. So here you go. I want to start at 15 because we're getting ready to do Rain Man here in a few months. Mm -hmm. And so at number 15, you have Ico Ico by the Bell Stars, popular from the movie Rain Man. Okay. Number 14, Rock On by Michael Damien, soap opera star Michael Damien. I actually liked that song. That's a good song. Then you have Cult of Personality. Then you have the song Thinking of You by Sapphire. Okay. Crickets. Number 11, Heaven Help Me by Dion Estes. Uh -uh. She Drives Me Crazy by the Fine Young Cannibals. I would rather have a nail up my foot to. She drives me. Please crazy. don't. <laughs> <laughs> you have Room to Move by Animotion, which we talked about last week. Right. You have Soldier of Love by Donny Osmond. Oh my God. Donny Osmond beats out Cult of Personality. Are you kidding me? That's nuts. After All by Peter Cetera and Cher. Second Chance by 38 Special. Forever Your Girl by Paula Abdul. Funky Cold Medina by Tone Loke. Real Love by Jody Watley. I'll Be There For You by Bon Jovi. And Like a Prayer by Madonna. Wow. That's a little bit of a rough list. Some of those are decent songs, but most of them are not. And none of them are better than this song. I agree with that. I agree with that. Cult of Personality is the best song on that list. For sure. Okay, guys, time to move on. I hate to do it because this is such a nuclear bomb of a song, but song number two on the album, I Want to Know. 
I think it's kind of funny that you're discussing this album in tandem with a Poison album because honestly, the riff of this song, I could have seen it being on any a big hair metal hit. It just shows the variety of the band. This is more of their upbeat, poppy side. I love it. It's got a great riff, great solo. Corey Glover sings his tail off as usual. This should have been a massive hit as well. I think you're right. I think it's poppy. Melodic is kind of fun. It's toe tapper. Like you said, the music is some very hair band ish. Honestly, it kind of it predates it. I know, but it kind of reminds me of the uh, the song from Dumb and Dumber. She don't eat meat, but she sure likes the bone song. What's that oh, song called? New Age Girl. Oh, that was by a Louisiana band. And I dig New Age Girl. So similar sound to that. And I like, like I said, I realize it predates it. The lyrics, though, like it's almost like a new kids on the block boy band style on these lyrics. I mean, it's and he I think they've they've doubled his or maybe even tripled or quadrupled his voice to give that kind of harmony sound to it. But it is it's it's very it's very boy band on the lyric side of things on this song. It's got an epic guitar solo at the end, which, you know, would not have been out of place on a Dawkins song or something like that. According to Vernon Reed, this song is about unrequited angst. And he says there's some lyrics in this song that he would take back today. So there's some things, uh, even when you talk about like a, a male crushing on a female, some things he wrote in there like, I'm standing in the shadows, baby. He said, with the Me Too movement, he's not as comfortable with those lyrics as he once was. And so he would probably change those today. But I don't care. I think this is a great song. I love it. We're two for two right out of the gate for me. I mean, standing in the metaphorical shadows doesn't really quite have the same <laughs> meaning to it. So. There's a police song from 1983 that'll put this one. <laughs> That's, That's true. I do not skip a single track on this album. And I think almost any one of them could have been a hit. So and this is clearly proves my point i totally agree okay moving on to song number three on the album middleman All right, another Jimmy Page-influenced lick to start this song out. The guitar on this is so freaking awesome. I love it. He's got a phaser in there, giving it this kind of flangey wah sound. I I dig it. I, I like this song a lot. Just Was this one released as a single? This was released, this was the first single released in May of 88 in the UK. Not in the US, though. I, I can't understand this one not being a smash hit either. I mean, lyrically, it's very deep. The music is it all fantastic music. Will Calhoun plays some incredible drums on this. Vernon plays another epic solo. I mean, all the living color trademarks are here. Okay. The most amazing thing about this song is how we got the lyrics to it. Tell me. This comes from the suicide note that Corey Glover wrote from when he was a teenager. Gosh. Do you know this story? No. Tell me more. So Corey Glover, I guess, had kind of had it with everybody. He was caught in the middle of everybody's mess and sort of the 
the tug of life, and he wrote out a suicide letter. I'm sick of this. I'm tired of being in the middle. I don't want to be caught in this anymore. Tired of being the middleman. So when Vernon Reed writes the music to this, he pulls out that letter, and that becomes the song Middleman. But I'm not your friend. Actually, he was talking about this during an interview, and Vernon Reed, this is the first song they collaborated on together, and Vernon Reed's sitting there, he's like, what are you talking about? He had no idea. <laughs> they had written it, they had recorded it, they put it on the album, and he had no idea that it was written from a suicide note. Wow. I thought that was fantastic. By the way, whenever they opened for the Rolling Stones, this was the song they opened with. They took the stage, and they said, hey, everyone, we're living color. And that's how they started. Man, I know you liked the cross-handed drum buildup on the video. I did. I, I, I texted you. I said, hey, man, can you can you do that? You sent me a video about 10 seconds later of you cross-handed drumming. Yeah, it, 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 looks, it looks cool, but it's not that hard compared to the rest of the stuff he plays on this album. Oh, my God. The guy is an absolute beast. This song is one of my top three or four favorite songs on the album. Okay. I love it. Fantastic. Three for three. All right, yes. Three for three. We're on to number four. This song is called Desperate People. Now, on this one, I got all kinds of Aerosmith going on. This is so strong on the Aerosmith vibe. Yeah, okay. This is a great, great build for the beginning of the song. And they keep on building, they keep on building, and then you get that primal yell by Corey. I was, I was just like, whoa, this is going to go somewhere. And then when they come in with the lyrics, he's got that gruff voice going on instead of his more melodic voice. And it's hitting all those hair metal feels that I needed to here back in 1989. I love it. I love how that chaotic opening sequence just goes straight into that monster riff. And Corey's voice on this one, man, I'm, I'm with D on this. I like he shows the more aggressive side of his singing. And a couple of those wails he does just make the non-existent hair stand up on the back of my neck. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so you got that interesting, that fast rock and start, and then it slows into this, this power rock anthem. I told D that I thought this is one of the best songs in the album. I love it. And I'm with you guys. Corey's vocals on this song, outside of Cult of Personality, may be the strongest on the album. I love what he's doing on this song. It, 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 particularly after the guitar solo that comes in, his voice even gets a little harsher and gruffer. And I, I like that. The intensity of the song just builds all the way to the end. So interesting, the lyrics on this song, Vernon Reed talks about how this song is definitely about addiction, but also about the people in your life that encourage addiction he even brings up the old cliche that misery loves company there was a line where it says you get your sunshine from a tab of paper which i guess i assume that meant somebody taking some hallucinogenics or lsd or something so yeah That's it was definitely a substance abuse element to this there is a breakdown in the middle of this song that i i just i, I love i think it's fantastic
And that chunky rhythm part, man, I love that. The rhythm guitar in this. Vernon is, I mean, he can play these incredible epic solos and he can play just the most bad A rhythm part. You got to love the guy. Again, I mean, we're what, four for four now? Four for four. Not bad odds. Okay, we are moving on to what I would say is my second favorite song on the album. This one is a little slower, a little smoother. This one's called Open Letter to a Landlord. Now you can tear a building down, but you can't erase a memory. These houses may look torn down, but they have a value you can see. So again, just amazing change and still beauty. You've got Vernon playing this muted guitar. It's so subtle, you almost don't hear it, but they're doing a little uh, harmonizing behind the it. using the Oz behind it, yeah. It's so like a, a choir at a church. He comes in singing such a soulful beginning to this song. It is sweet and beautiful, and then all of a sudden... They come in with the drums and just start cranking away. Jason and I have been texting about this album. One of the things we both really appreciated was how they managed to address social issues without getting overly preachy. And this song was about the gentrification of some of the poor neighborhoods in New York at the time, how the buildings for people had lived for generations were being torn down and replaced by newer buildings that the people who lived there previously couldn't afford. And they make it to a really beautiful, compelling song, but it doesn't feel like they're preaching at you. Yeah, I would say that the verses are sad and angry, but the chorus is uplifting. I texted you. I'm like, this song is so beautiful. It needs strings. I would love to hear this song played by the London Symphony or something like that. I read how Vernon Reed was talking about how the Black Rock Coalition group that he helped form was very concerned that some of the buildings had been torn down to make way for the gap. There was a guy named Tracy Morris who was another member of the Black Rock Coalition. He was more a poet than a, a musician, but evidently he worked with Vernon. He gave Vernon some of the stanzas and lines for that song, and Vernon incorporated it into the overall song. This is another great example of what incredible musicians these guys are. We talked about it, the dynamics, that soft, gentle opening, the really crunchy choruses, and at the end, that big fade out with all the background vocals. It's just masterpiece didn't they but, perform this one on saturday night live maybe i, think, I know they performed cult of personality but it probably was this song that they did on saturday night live that article i showed you guys there was a funny line in it um there's a singer named lejean witherspoon who's for a heavy metal band called seven dust uh-huh it said they just mentioned the title of this song to him and instantly he sang the first verse uh-huh that was a pretty big influence on him as well okay I so this is one of the singles off of the album yes had a video with it yes Video was directed by Drew Carolyn, who is the same guy who directed the Cult of Personality video. Uh-huh. They shot a bunch of live footage at a place called Toad's Place in New Haven um, in front of a live audience. Had him come in, but this was right before they left on the Steel Wheels tour with the Rolling. And I, I do know that from listening to this cassette over and over again and back and forth to school that this was the last song on side once. You know what that means? 
Hit stop on your tape player. Kick it out. Flip it over for side two. First song is Funny Vibe. So the beginning of this song, I'm like, dude, this is like STP came and stole this stuff from them, man. This is so free grunge music. I'm I'm totally digging it. And then all of a sudden they totally switch gears and they go into this very jazzy lead going on, lead riff, and Muzz Skillings is just slapping the crap out of the bass on this song. And then when the lyrics come in, I'm like, are we are we channeling Run DMC here? This is like total hip hop from '83. Yeah, I mean it's it's rap, it's funk, it's rock. I get Prince vibes from this one. Yeah, yeah, that too for sure. This is where the band's funk background really began to show. I mean, the guitar solo sounds like something Eddie Hazel from Parliament Funkadelic would have played. And of course, you know, we got sneak appearances by Chuck D and Flavor Flav from Public Enemy. Shout I out, know, right? How cool is that? It sounds like it was based on more personal experiences, just people seeing him in the streets and being threatened by them, saying, no, no, I'm just a normal guy trying to go about my life. I'm not going to hurt you. not going to do anything. Just Well, here's the deal. Yeah, so Vernon Reed was in a department store. He said he was having the best day of his life. He was in a great mood, and he got on an elevator, and there was an older woman in the elevator with him. And when he looked at her, he kind of looked at her and smiled, and she sort of subconsciously clutched her handbag and moved to the corner. And he said it just enraged him. And so the lyrics from this song came out of that experience. No, I'm not going to rob you. No, I'm not going to beat you. No, I'm not going to rape you. And I'll try not to hate you. I saw a video during COVID and you had the drummer from Anthrax, Charlie Benante. Then you had the bassist from Suicidal Tendencies, Rod Diaz. And then the guitarist from Butcher Babies, his name is Henry Flurry. And they got together over Zoom and they're going to play their version of Funny Vibe. And so they said, well... We need a singer, but if you're going to cover Living Color, you got to get somebody who can really sing. So they called Corey Glover, and Corey Glover got on there with them. And they're doing the four-way Zoom thing, and it is awesome. You've got to check that out. Unless I'm mistaken, I think that at some point in the late 80s and or very early 90s, Living Color and Anthrax may have toured together. Oh, wow. Okay. That's cool. I showed this as the last single from Vivid, although they, they're... Their schedule of releasing singles is so messy. I, I can't tell what's first and what's last. There's also a false ending in this song that's really cool. It fades out, fades out, fades out. You think the song is done, and then it crashes back in. I love it. I swear I think we're six for six now. All right, let's move on to the next song on the album. This song is called Memories Can't Wait. Okay, so this is a cover. Yeah. It's a cover of the Talking Heads song, Memories Can't Wait. It was off of their 1979 album called Fear of Music. 
it wasn't a single off of that album. It wasn't some big hit. I'm not really sure why they chose this song. I mean, it's kind of interesting to listen to. Have you guys heard the Talking Heads version? No, let's listen to it. Despite evidence to the contrary, these are the same song. Yeah. The drum, I, I, I can hear the, sum, the same drum beat. Beyond that, seems like a very different kind of song. Yeah. So interestingly, the producer on this album, Ed Stasian, had produced for the Talking Heads. So there's that connection. Vernon Reed probably came up because of his age and the time he was in New York. I mean, they were a big part of the late 70s New York rock scene. So I'm sure he was familiar with the band and their material. Well, yeah, Talking Heads were big at CBGBs. And so he was also a fan of post-punk. And so he said he felt a connection to them. And so he wanted to cover one of their songs. This one, to me, is a little off bullseye. I enjoy it just because you got those big booming drums that come in throughout the song. And again, I think Corey sings really well on it. It's kind of got a darker feel than some of the other material. So it, it wouldn't be one of my top songs off the album, but I still enjoy it. It's kind of interesting to listen to, but this is not my style of music. Right. Well, let's move on to the next song. Ladies and gentlemen, put your hands together. Broken Hearts. Okay, so the introduction is a guy named Dennis Diamond saying, doing the carnival barking there. Yeah. Then we get a harmonica come in. You know who's playing the harmonica? No. Mick Jagger. Oh, wow. That's yeah. cool. Yeah. He uh, was also involved with some production on some of the later songs that we're going to talk about here in a second, but he played the harmonica on that. This song, is it's got a very Wild Horses and the Rolling Stones Absolutely. feel to it, but I think somebody forgot to tell Will Calhoun. <laughs> like you don't have a country honky tonk drum beat going on. You've got a big old boom, cha boom, 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 ch. Yeah. And I'm just like, it works. I don't know why it works, but somehow we've got this steel guitar, this honky tonk sound, the harmonica, the doop de doo, yeah. and big drums, and somehow they still make it work. A breeze reminds me of a change. Vernon Reed said this was a straight-up love song and their attempt to mix country blues and hip-hop. I think this song pretty much belongs to Corey and Muzz. Corey sings beautifully throughout it. And if you listen, Muzz has that burbling bass going through the whole thing. He even plays a bass solo, which you don't really hear a lot in pop radio. He plays a very melodic bass solo that leads right into one of Vernon's most beautiful solos. So yeah, this song definitely works for me. Vernon Reed said that this song is just like Old Town Road, just 30 years earlier. <laughs> well, I, I like this song better than that song. This is the one, this is the song on the album that was like the the hidden gem for me. I had never bought this song before. I didn't have this album. I got to this song and I'm like, wow, I really 
really dig the song. It's great. It's great. It's great. Once again, Vernon Reed talks about the similarities between country and hip hop. Yeah. Because they're both story based and they're anecdotal. Yeah. Love this song. I think it's great. It's pretty. It's the power ballad of the album. Yep. So was this a single? Nope. I don't think it was, which was a huge miss in my estimation. Okay. Moving on. So I mentioned before, Mick Jagger involved in the producing side on some of these songs. This is the first of those songs. Another big hit off the album, song number nine, Glamour Boys. Give me a killer drum beat. Yep. Give me a funky bass line. Yep. Give me a happy little rhythm guitar. Yep. Now give me some lyrics with a melody that are an absolute hook. I don't know how the song didn't chart better than it did. This is like a perfect little song. It's a great little pop song, right? Yeah. Funny, funky, great playing, funny lyrics, everything you need. No, this is so fun. It's a, it's a pop song. It's fun. It's catchy. It's radio friendly. You know how I love my radio friendly hits. I, yes. I texted James this week and I said, P.S. I'm not a glamour boy. And he texted me right back. I'm fierce. Right. And they and they kind of they come in with a little harder guitar right there when they say I'm fierce, just so that they know that you know they're not just about being radio friendly. They yeah. are fierce. They are fierce. It's funny, it's funky, it's got those clever lyrics D was talking about. I mean, this this could have been a smash. Okay. Have you guys seen the video to this song since nineteen eighty nine? No, probably not. Okay. So obviously it's it's putting down the sort of the party guys who spend all their money on clothes to get girls, but they have no real substance. In the video, they have these huge plastic like Ken doll masks that they wear around. They look ridiculous and it's funny. Like there's they're really showing their sense of humor in this video. It does put them in a very dubious position. <laughs> I love this song, man. It wasn't it nominated for a like best rock duo performance like in ninety or ninety one. So I guess nominated for a Grammy for best rock performance by a duo or group in nineteen ninety. And just so we don't leave it out, the Oklahoma boys have to say they also put the OU in glamour. Yes, good job. <laughs> Maybe Vernon's a secret OU fan. Ah, I think he is. This song reached number thirty one on the Hot One Hundred. You want to hear the thirty? No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> <laughs> Okay, I've got to read this to you because my mind was blown by this, okay? The music video was directed by Graham Elliott and John England. Both these guys went to the Royal College of Art in London. They were the ones who designed the album cover for Vivid, okay? Oh, cool. So, and this is after Vernon Reed saw a postcard that they did and asked for them. When they started working on it, the album did not have a name and the band didn't have a logo yet. So they sketched a placeholder logo and inserted a temporary positioner where the album title would go with the name and design house they 
they were working under. The name of the design house they were working under, Vivid. That is how the album got its name. Vernon Reed saw the album cover. He looked, said, looks great. That title right there looks great. We're keeping it. Living Color, Vivid. That's awesome. And this is why I love you guys. That's the kind of deep dives you do not get anywhere else. <laughs> All right. On to the next song. This song's called, What's Your Favorite Color, Baby? Living Color. Okay, I told you guys all last night I was walking around my house. I pointed at my daughter. I'm like, what's your favorite color, baby? She didn't know to repeat back to me living color, but. What's your favorite color, baby? Living color. What's your favorite yeah, it was still fun. This song sounds so much like the intro song for the series that would come out two years later. You had to have stolen it, right? Well, I mean, it's it's like a TV theme song, right? Well, it does. It sounds like that, but because I know it as a TV theme song, right? Right. I mean, the guy who is the composer for In Living Color, the series that we referenced at the beginning of the episode, right, is a guy named Tom Rizzo. They're not giving any credit to the Living Color OU guys. It's just uh, seems very similar. Very similar. Let's listen to that theme song real quick. Sounds awfully familiar. Yeah. In terms of copyright law, I don't think homie. I don't think homie likes that. Yeah. <laughs> well, homie did not play that one. I got no. a song about it. I'd like to hear it. Here it goes. <laughs> <laughs> Vernon Reed talks about how this is their theme song, right? Yeah. He's like, Chic had a theme song. Yeah. You know, Bad Company had a song called Bad Company. Yeah. This is our theme song. What's your favorite color? Living color. And this song should almost be a joke or a filler, but somehow it works. Because you start off with that crunchy metallic riff, then you get funky with a capital f-u-n-k-y it's fun i mean there's no great lyrical significance to it it's just a fun song but it's only two minutes long just fyi my favorite color is green but i'm not mean yeah leading up to this i was talking to a friend of mine named jeff bowders who's an amazing drummer in los angeles and because he was also a big fan of will calhoun's playing on this album we were you know we spent a few moments geeking out about that so hopefully we'll have a new listener out in los angeles before this is over with awesome what's up jeff how you doing buddy is he a skins hitter as well he is um yeah he is to the to a very advanced degree my drummer we are my favorite line from high school was somebody was introducing my drummer to somebody and they they said this is kevin you can't go five minutes without beating on something. <laughs> <laughs> well, Jeff, it's good to have you. I hope you enjoy what you're hearing. Hit us up on Facebook. Hit us up on Twitter. Send us an email. We'd Welcome. love to hear from you. Welcome to the family, Jeff. All right. So that brings us to the last song on the album. This song is called Which Way to America?
Muzz and Will knocking it out of the park again. I mean, he comes in with a machine gun style on the drums on this one. And then with the chorus, Vernon is playing this very funky, like you would describe as a Prince style rhythm. But then when they come in on the chorus, it's like heavy metal, hard rock, right in your face, crunchy guitar. They, again, this is like every other song in this album, but it really kind of is the key to finish off the album of You Can't Put Us in a Box. It's got a really heavy, propulsive feel that I love. And we talked earlier about their ability to work social issues into their lyrics without becoming overly preachy. And in this one, talking about how one person's view of the American dream may be a little bit different to the other, I thought they had some really deep lyrics. I changed the channel, your America's doing fine. I read the headlines, my America's doing fine. After the kind of whimsical nature of Glamour Boys and What's Your Favorite Color, this is kind of a slightly more down song, but it's got very intelligent lyrics and the music is just incredible. Vernon Reed says, this is the difference between the idealized America, home and heart, and life on the streets. This is a little bit off-center for me. I'm more of the Glamour Boys radio-friendly hits, but it's impossible not to tap my toe to this one. These guys, even when they're heavy music and heavy issues, they still make it pretty... It's that funk background, man. Those guys make it tap your toe even to most serious songs on the album. I would be curious as to what they set the metronome at on this one. This this tempo is so freaking fast in this song. I've got to think it's like 140 or 150 or something. I mean, it's cooking. It is definitely a fast, one of their faster songs. You know, several other songs, they'll throw in these quick, almost speed metal parts, and they work it in so seamlessly. That's just, I guess, just how talented these guys are. They can blend the thrash with the funk and never miss a step. Okay, guys, so this that does it for Vivid. We are now going into Final Judgment. Before Jason and James and I tell you what we think. We got Dale Selby to give us his opinion on Open Up and Say Ah versus Vivid. Dale, what do you think, man? Well, we discussed it. Two very different albums. Uh, you, you probably couldn't put them on farther sides of the spectrum. Uh, you've got the one that's political, that's make, try, making a statement, uh, very different kind of music. You know, you've got the uh, the rap, the rock, kind of intertwined. Um, obviously, different types of guys who are doing the the albums themselves, right? Both of them incredible albums from that from the year of 1988. I think Vivid for me is not as fun, right? It's not as rock and roll maybe as as Open Up and Say Ah was. Has some great tracks on it. Cult of Personality was a mega hit when we were 15 years old. Great song, great great song. For me, I think in the end, though, when I was 15, I was into having fun <laughs> and and driving with the windows down and having open up and say, ah, cranked. I'm going to go with open up and say, ah. Not surprised. Fantastic. <laughs> <laughs> Not surprised. James, you're our guest. Please go first between open up and say, ah, by Poison or Vivid by Living Color. I had both albums. I love both albums. Open Up and Say Ah was, a, I thought, a fairly serious step forward for the band. There was some great riffs. The songwriting had improved. Great production. 
and it was pretty much pop metal perfection. But over the decades, I don't find myself going back to it as much. You know, I hear some of the songs on the radio and enjoy it. But I, I listen to Vivid a lot still. Every time I listen to it, I, I'll get something new. It meant more to me as a musician and just a music lover than the other album did. I don't think there's any question that if you called the members of Poison, if you told them that they were Glamour Boys, they'd be okay with that. <laughs> the living color and Vivid, it's fierce. And it takes the top spot for me. Wow. Okay. There's one vote for Vivid and one vote for Poison. Okay. All right. I'm going first. So I still contend that on that Poison album, you have the best party rock song of the 80s. You have one of the best power ballads of the 80s, the entire 80s. You have radio-friendly hit after radio-friendly hit, and that's my bag, baby. On Vivid, you've got one of the best hard rock songs of the 80s, and then you've got a whole bunch of songs that are really great. So which one am I grabbing? I own both. I love both. I could really go either way on this. If I'm walking out the door, I'm probably grabbing both. But if you put a gun to my head and you said you could only bring one album with you, I'm grabbing Vivid because there are more great songs on this album than on Open Up and Say Ah. How about that? I, I think you are 100% correct. I think you and James are both 100% correct. The musicianship on Vivid is better. The lyrics are stronger, more intelligent. The best song on the album is better than any song on Open Up and Say Ah flat out better than any other song on the album. My problem is I did not own this album in the 1980s or 1990s. Yeah. I did, however, buy Open Up and Say Ah when it came out on May 3rd, 1988, and I played it on heavy rotation. This album, I know it's better, but it cannot overcome the memories from 1988 and 1989. I think I, I think our band covered at least three different songs off open up and say ah and so i have to say i gotta pick poison and i'm picking my poison and i i fully acknowledge vivid is a better album but walking out the door just because of all the feels that it gives me i'm picking up poison. Uh, don't be ashamed man spike the football dude <laughs> <laughs> awesome well that's fantastic well we want to hear from you these are two gigantic albums from the 80s if you are a listener we definitely want to hear from you on this. If you're walking out the door, do you grab the feel-good, fun, glitz and glamour of Poison, or do you grab the more serious, pounding rock of living color? Let us hear from you. D, what do we got on the books next week? So, we were talking about the villain in both Rumblefish and the store clerk in... The Outsiders, and I was like, I didn't remember who this guy was, but he looked familiar, and I'm like, oh, and it goes back to the old Clint Eastwood movie, and you were like, oh, I love that movie, and we started talking, we didn't realize that we both loved these kind of movies that people don't really talk about anymore, Yeah, but we don't mind talking about it, we're going to be covering Clint Eastwood's Every Which Way But Loose, and the second one, which is called Any Which Way You Can, and we're going to be comparing those two movies for his birth month, May. He'll be turning 93 this year. Holy cow. Holy cow. And talk about an icon. I mean, the guy was megastar decade after decade after decade. And we get to talk about a couple of his lesser known, but really great movies that we remember from our youth. You say lesser known, but these are two of his bigger hits. Isn't that a crazy thing? Like How most profitable movies in his catalog yes wow how about that you guys have to join us as we discuss those movies 
James, you uh, you uh, every which way but loose, any which way you can, fan. I remember going to see the second one when I was a boy with my cousin at a little <laughs> in Junction City, Arkansas. And, and for years afterwards, all we would say was right turn, Clyde. Right turn, Clyde. <laughs> James, thanks for being here with us, man. We we love talking with you. We love kicking around these albums with you. We appreciate your patronage and friendship over the years. I hope you had a great time today talking about an album that you love. Talking about one of my favorite albums with my favorite podcast, man. You can't beat it. It's a great way to spend a Friday afternoon. I think for the next album, we're going to have to get your wife on, though, because... She that accent, that Louisiana accent that she's got, that's gonna that's gonna melt some hearts. It out was there. strong. <laughs> but when she speaks Spanish, she sounds like she just stepped across the border from Tijuana. <laughs> <laughs> All right, everybody. That's it for us. Come back next week where we do the Clint Eastwood and Clyde the Orangutan double feature. Right turn, Clyde. What's your favorite color, baby? Living color. <laughs>